This is Bookish at Bethel, and I am Anne-Marie Koyster in the History Department. I am joined by Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Marion Larson from the English Department. We're mostly going to be discussing Dracula, but we're going to go back a little bit to Frankenstein and revisit that book too. So thanks for listening. Well, it's our last podcast of the 2019-2020 school year. So thanks to everybody for being here. Um, Even though this is going to be a podcast in which we talk a little bit about Dracula, because that's the coming attraction for the fall for Humanities for students, I know that Professor Peffley had only just kind of dipped her toe into Frankenstein during our last conversation. And because for me, I can't get enough of Frankenstein and the creature. I just would love to hear, Carrie, first, what you think of the book, having now finished the book. Yeah, so I think last week I had said I was through page like 25 of Frankenstein. Um, we had a scintillating conversation on Frankenstein in my, uh, in my Zoom session on Wednesday. Um, it was really good. Um, I think one of my students put it best as it's not, it wasn't as horror or horrifying as I thought it would be, but it was psychologically um, very challenging and horrifying. Um, and so getting into questions of, especially the problem of evil um, and and what makes a person evil, sort of nature versus nurture and seeing several moments where I just was so mad at Dr. Frankenstein for not making him a mate and, you know, denying him all of these things. And um, so I really, I really quite liked it. it. It was a fantastic discussion, so many really interesting themes. Um, and I think we hit on a lot of those themes last week. Yeah. Now, Carrie, just to just to put pressure on you for one last thing before we mm-hmm. move to Dracula. Uh, where for you did Victor Frankenstein go wrong? Well, I think really from the very beginning, his, <laughs> his obsession. I mean, he was so clearly having problems right away as he was creating, you know, his creature. And then as soon as he created it, this sort of hubris that he had, and also it was interesting to teach it at the same time as I was teaching um, experimental philosophy, experimental ethics. And we were talking about our tendency to be much, to have much higher ethical standards for our own in-group as opposed to the out-group and constantly seeing Frankenstein just not caring about his creature because it's not like him. It's something different. Um, so I think his his mistakes were from the very beginning, very beginning. Okay. I, that's interesting. A lot of my students said that too. Uh, Marion, any final thoughts from you on Frankenstein before we move into our next topic? Uh, no, I mean, if I think of anything else about Frankenstein while we're talking about Dracula, I might come back into that. Um, I, I did multiple small group Zoom conversations with my students today. And so I'm a little bit Frankensteined out right now. I literally had four conversations in a row today about Frankenstein. And although I still love the book, um, I can't think of anything brilliant to say right now. 
That's okay. Now, here's a one more question about Frankenstein. And I don't know if I have had students already posting their trailers for Frankenstein. Yeah, on so me, me too. And Carrie, I don't know if you've noticed if students have done so. Uh, yeah, I've had one or two. One, yeah. or two or one or two I, groups. I have like three or four. Three or four. And have you looked either one of you at the trailers that you've seen up there? Mm -hmm. Marion has. Okay. So tell me about what you're seeing. Uh, well, I mean, one thing I'm seeing, which doesn't surprise me, is many of the visual images come from various film renditions uh, of the book. Um, and But what, uh, one thing that I have found particularly interesting is um, one student whose trailer I just now looked at commented on the fact that it was important to her, even in her 90-second trailer, to include some visual details that help to humanize the creature and don't make him just a grotesque, abnormal looking thing. So she included like uh, also, well, anyway, the scene of uh, the creature with the little girl um, that of course mm -hmm. accidentally ends in the little girl's death. Mm -hmm. um, but at least the beginning moments of that scene are uh, are much more positive ones. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Nice. And I looked at just one from my class so far and was very pleased with what mm -hmm. I what I saw. So for those of you who are listening, uh, all five sections have assigned as the final project or one of the final projects for the class. Um, students are doing a 90 minute trailer for the book. 90 second. 90 seconds. <laughs> um, 90 minute would be a full on movie. Yes, it's it would. Would. It's and while would. that would be awesome, maybe not so awesome. That would be a huge yeah. investment of our time in grading it. But yes. uh, we will post though the the best ones to the um, bookish site, the the blog post, uh, the blog site when we uh, when we get those. So I will. Can I say one more thing? I will interested to see how many students really focus on nature as well. Um, so the conversation that I was with students on Wednesday kept coming back to nature. And I had one mm. student in particular who had read Frankenstein in high school mm -hmm. and said, do you know what struck me this time after listening to Professor Larson's lecture? The romanticism just jumped out at me. And like nature is where everyone goes to rejuvenate. Yeah, and yeah giving force. So I'll be interested to see whether that shows up in some of the trailers too. Fantastic. Well, I'm very excited about this. Well, part of the reason that we are going to talk a little bit about Dracula is because um, starting in the fall, we will have Humanities 1 going at the same time as Humanities 4. And so you might be hearing us talk about Humanities 1 books while we're also talking about Humanities 4 books. And so we wanted to get one Humanities 4 book in the mix right away. And this is the, the book Dracula. We brought Marianne Larson back on to talk about Dracula because again, English literature, we just had her on to talk about another monster novel. And so Marianne, for those who have only seen movie versions of Dracula, could you say a little bit about the book Dracula? Yeah, so uh, one, well, first of all, I, I would say people who had only seen film versions of Frankenstein before and were surprised by um, the narrative form of Frankenstein, the book, and also surprised by how much we learn about the creature 
which isn't at all what comes across in most of the film versions. I think similarly, people will be surprised, I hope pleasantly, by uh, how different the novel Dracula is from most film versions. I mean, the similarity of course is there is a central character named Dracula. He is a vampire. He does present uh, threats to people um, of the same kind of threat that you see in most vampire movies. Um, but uh, in terms of the form of the book, just like in Frankenstein, um, we have letters. Actually, uh, Dracula in in form is uh, is much more varied than that. We have mm -hmm. letters, we have telegrams, we have uh, newspaper clippings, we have uh, journal entries, um, and so uh, we as readers have to kind of engage in a almost, we have to be almost like detectives trying to solve uh, the whole question of, well, like who is Dracula? How threatening is Dracula? What's, what are, how do we explain the weird things that seem to be happening to certain characters? And um, the form that the novel takes is part of, uh, just sort of contributes to that, I think. We're watching the characters try to figure out what's happening. And we also are trying to figure out what's happening, which I, I think is part of what makes the book fun to read. Well, mm -hmm. it's, it's a fantastic sort of um, building of empirical evidence in order to explain a supernatural kind of being. And so there's a very interesting play between the assembling of the empirical data yeah. in order to make sense somehow of something. Well, and in fact, along those lines, thematically, one of the things I find particularly interesting about Dracula is the way in which um, sort of cutting edge Victorian era science and also uh, traditional folk beliefs, superstition and religion all play into the story. Um, and so it's <laughs> the characters in the novel who rely exclusively on uh, what can science prove, uh, what can I know for sure, are the ones who literally almost get destroyed by Dracula. Um, but at the same time, so it's not, oh, it's either about science or um, like religion and, and superstition. It's uh, you kind of need the full package of ways of thinking in order to defeat Dracula. So uh, Dr. Van Helsing, um, I love <laughs> every single time this character is mentioned in the novel, um, he's got like a whole string of letters after his name. It's kind of like he's got every possible degree, but at the same, and he know he's probably the most well-versed in what at the time would have been cutting edge science, like uh, blood transfusion, for example, but at the same time, oh, and they also all rely on what at the time would have been the most current possible communication technologies, uh, typewriter, voice recording, um, you know, things that, uh, you know, sound ridiculously out of date to us. Um, so they're using really up-to-date science and technology, and that's crucial in defeating Dracula, but 
they also have to leave open the possibility for there being aspects of this creature that can't be fully explained. And we don't know why some of the traditional folk um, uh, weapons like uh, garlic and crucifixes and a wooden stake through the heart, all, you know, all that stuff is in the book. We don't know why that sort of thing seems to be helpful, but it is. Um, yeah. Well, and that comment kind of reminds me of the things that fascinated Carrie Puffley about Frankenstein initially in the first couple of pages where Victor Frankenstein's initial interest is actually in both a combination of science, but the science with alchemy and the magical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there, that's an interesting kind of tie in that I maybe didn't make um, when I was reading Dracula the first time, but yeah. 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 I think as I was, as Marion, you were just talking about um, Van Helsing, especially I was thinking, Oh yeah, that's right. Because he is, and he describes himself as a physician, but also a metaphysician. And so he's definitely thinking about existence and the spiritual, but also um, these really, really important physical things that, that have to be done in order to take down Dracula. Yeah. Now I haven't read the book in a few years because I think I was on sabbatical the last time we read it for humanity. So I'm going to um, sort of pivot to Carrie a little bit. Um, what, what stands out for you about the book Dracula and maybe what makes it fun to teach for you? Um, so I think Dracula is number one, just a really scary book. The first time I read Dracula, um, I was living in Boston at the time and I had to actually, I got so scared that I had to um, put the book down, put it in a different room and shut the door um, <laughs> to sort of escape my own fear. So I think it's just really, it's very, very scary. Um, and then um, sort of second thing that I really like about just teaching it um, is this, this piece that Marion mentioned um, about the way in which the characters are working from their own perspectives mm -hmm. to make sense of what's happening. And the audience is also working through their perspectives, but also with knowledge of the other perspectives um, that are gradually being weaved together so that it's this um, kind of spider web of, of narrative. Um, and then I also really like the way in which it leads to really interesting conversations about um, what it is to be a woman um, and the idea of the new woman uh, that was really important at that or really significant at that time. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about that too. Um, in my conversations about Frankenstein with my students, one of the questions we talked about was on the one hand, how can you tell that Mary Shelley is a product of the Romantic era. Um, how does she sound like a capital R Romantic? How does the book sound like a product of that era? But at the same time, what warnings or critiques of that era's assumptions does she seem to build into the cautionary tale that is that novel? And you see similar things going on in Dracula. Um, I mean, that that's really, it, in one way of thinking about it, that's really, often what monster stories are. They, they often embody the cultural moment that produced them um, and they serve as kind of uh, warnings and reinforcements of particular cultural 
cultural values. So in the time in which uh, Bram Stoker was writing Dracula, there were the uh, late Victorian period, right? You know, right around the shift from the end of the 1800s to the early early 1900s. Um, there were big questions about what does it mean to be a proper woman? And you still have um, kind of traditional understandings of uh, a woman should be feminine and should be um, quote unquote sexually pure uh, and, um, and should rely on men to help her. And uh, th there was a famous poem um, written at the time that got quoted a lot uh, called The Angel of the House um, that would talk about how uh, basically one of the lines is something like uh, men like to be pleased and it pleases women to please their man. Um, and uh, so th those were really strong, uh, uh, absolutely reinforced um, messages about what it means to be a woman, reinforced by the queen herself, Queen Victoria, um, and the the fact that she produced many, many offspring with her husband. And except for the fact that she happened to be queen, she sort of fit this angel of the house kind of idea. Um, but at the same time, you have a growing number of uh, women who say, you know what, maybe there are, uh, additional things I want to do with my life. Maybe I don't want to marry right away. Maybe I don't want to marry at all. Um, what about uh, gaining job skills? What about, uh, and are some of the attitudes about women's sexuality that are so prevalent in society, in that society at that time, um, is that how I want to be defined? And the women who were willing to sort of challenge things uh, were, were called the new woman. Um, some of these women uh, would, in order to travel from like place to place, so some of them might be a secretary, for example, they would ride on bicycles. And the it's a little inconvenient to ride a bicycle if you're wearing a floor length skirt with many petticoats and and a corset and all that sort of, that sort of thing. So they would wear um, clothing that some people described as as mannish. Mm -hmm. So uh, things that looked sort of like they were wearing slacks. Um, and the, the the two primary female characters in this novel, Lucy and Mina, um, Lucy in some ways seems more and more like the kind of traditional come help me woman. Mm -hmm. Mina is a little more like the new woman in terms of having job skills. And uh, one of the characters says that Mina, she's got a mind like a man. Right. And that's meant to be uh, congratulations to her. Um, but, and I, I, I don't want to spoil details because we want people to be excited by reading the book, but um, Mina, it, but, but it's not quite as simple as that. The two characters also kind of question those two, the novel kind of questions those two. It's not like it says, oh, a woman should be traditional or, oh, a woman should be a new woman. It's a little bit of, kind of a little bit of both. Right. Yeah. Um, Lucy, of course, ends up being sort of hypersexualized. So she kind of represents the fear about the freedoms that women potentially gained in this late um, Victorian period in terms of sexuality. And Mina, in some ways, 
she represents kind of the vanguard, as you said, in terms of the professional capacity. But it's important to note that for Bram Stoker, he makes that professional capacity in service to her husband. She's taken up these skills within the context of a marriage in which she hopes to be a help to her husband. But her husband, I'm just going to say this for everybody listening. I, I got to say, he's uh, kind of a weak link in the... <laughs> story as I recall. Well, he's kind of a damsel in distress. I mean, part of it is the first, I don't know, the first, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages, he's literally described exactly the way that in a scary, traditional um, gender roles book, a woman would be described. He's, oh, I, I'm stuck in this castle and I can't get out. And oh, people are threatening me sexually. And oh, I, um, it, yeah, he, he's the damsel in distress, which I, I kind of love that part. I have to say, but yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Apparently, Bram Stoker was um, married to in a relationship with a very strong woman, and so I don't know how much that played into hmm. how he wrote the book, but hmm. that's fascinating too. Mm, yeah. Um, what else should we talk about here? Uh, there are some other interesting characters. So there's, uh, we've already mentioned the Professor Van Helsing, but then there's also the American Quincy. Is that his name? Quincy? Yeah. yeah. Quincy Morris. Quincy I think. Morris. He's kind of like, uh, he's like Buffalo Bill. He, oh, and I say Buffalo Bill, like who's going to know who Buffalo Bill is? Do you want to <laughs> Well, Buffalo. Oh, so I appreciate you asking because Buffalo Bill is actually someone that Bram Stoker met. Yeah. While Buffalo Bill was traveling with, he had something called the Traveling Wild West Show, and I'm not making that up for those of you who are like, no way. But it's basically um, he would recreate with Native Americans and white folks on horses and the whole bit, sort of a reconquest of the American West that was um, something that we saw in history after the American Civil War. So he would have, um, you know, a Pony Express wagon being attacked by Native Americans and they'd shoot back. And, then, and so they'd have this whole like recreation of a fictional history. But he also had Annie Oakley as part, you know, so there's like shooting, you know, um, exhibitions and so on and so forth. But this show was so popular that it not only toured the United States, but it actually went to Britain. And that's where Bram Stoker met um, Buffalo Bill. And yeah, I mean, so the Quincy Morris character is a very interesting sort of, here's what the British think of the American archetype. <laughs> and so, I don't know if I like that, but there it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the doctor. What's his name? Is it oh, Stuart? Seward, yeah. Dr. Seward. He's another very interesting one because he is living, as I understand, as I remember, in an insane asylum, right? Mm hmm Well, I don't know if he's actually living there. No, yeah, he's just, he's just working with the... He works there? Yeah. And okay. he, one, of, uh, one, of the, one of his patients oh. that gets talked about over and over again is a patient who seems to, uh, he's kind of hard to describe, but he's a patient who is kind of, well, first of all, loves to consume blood and is a, like a crazy Dracula-like character. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems that every time this character 
goes a little crazy, that's uh, kind of a hint to us that Dracula is afoot. It's like this guy is sort of by his crazy psychic radar um, attached to and uh, aware of sort of the the world of Dracula. Oh, he's. I think that's a very fascinating relationship. And again, one of the things that I remember very clearly from reading this now four years ago is there is a portion at, in the book very early on where Dr. Seward is thinking about how he can help his psychiatric patients. And he wonders aloud, what is allowable in the name of science and progress. Again, a theme that mm. really resonates back mm. to Frankenstein. Mm. He talks about how once upon a time, vivisection was something that was really frowned upon, but now we've decided that's okay. Mm -hmm. He sort of wonders kind of what the next step will be in terms of what is allowable in science in terms of progress. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and Dr. Seward is, I mean, he's kind of the ideal ex example in the book of a person who for way too long um, views science as the only tool to use in solving the problem of Dracula. And in fact, he doesn't even uh, recognize that there's a problem. Like we know <laughs> as readers that Lucy has been bitten by Dracula, or at least we suspect that something's been going on for a while. And her appearance and her behavior start changing. Um, and it's kind of one of those, you know, like part of what adds tension to some monster stories is you kind of want to grab certain characters by the shoulders and say, would you just, would you just notice this? Um, and, but he's just, he can't allow himself to believe that something as weird as Dracula could be real. Um, and so he almost, misses out on the opportunity um, to help solve the problem because he's so driven by science. Right. And that brings up Lucy's got a, well, let's just say significant other who's also part of the, the team of investigators. Um, so I, I don't feel like talking about him so much. I don't really love him, but I do want to make sure that one thing we talk about is some people look at this novel as also a comment on the colonialism that is occurring at the end of the um, 19th century. I don't know, Marion, if you want to say a little bit about how that how that works into the novel. Yeah, so um, by the end of the Victorian era, so by 1901, so roughly about exactly the time the novel was written, Britain was the world imperial power. Uh, this was the height of the British Empire. Um, about a quarter of the entire surface of the globe was governed by Britain at that time. Um, and uh, as with many uh, colonial powers, uh, the US, I mean, for example, when we read Mary Rowlandson, when we read Zitkalasa, um, colonizers like to find ways to justify what they're doing. And they'll sometimes use a racial justification um, the, the fill in the blank racial category is scientifically and morally superior to the group that's being subjugated. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll sometimes use religious justifications. We saw that in Zikalasa and in Mary Rowlandson. So those dynamics have all been happening in Britain up through the Victorian era, but 
by the turn of the century, um, you know, right around the, it, from the 19th to the early 20th century, a small but increasingly vocal number of people in Britain are starting to, and in the colonies, are starting to challenge imperialism, pointing out the negative impact of British colonialism on some of the subjugated peoples. So how does this connect to the novel? Um, well, first of all, we could say that the that Count Dracula himself, who is from, he's not from England. He's from, uh, you know, modern day. Well, he's got a super interesting backstory. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but basically he has been kind of a, a colonizer himself in his uh, several hundred years ago before he became a vampire. And now he, so he's the, for, he's a foreigner. He's uh, a racial and cultural other who has a plan to um, basically colonize England. He, right. he wants to yeah. invade England and, uh, and use British subjects uh, to feed on and turn them into vampires too. Um, and so, you know, we could kind of say that uh, Dracula is like a, a colonizer gone horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so anyway, that's one of the ways that that uh, race or colonization sort of fits into the novel. And the Quincy Morris character, Wild West frontier hero kind of mm -hmm. falls into that theme also. Yeah, well, and it, this is another interesting little tiny potential connection back to Frankenstein, because I think one of the concerns for Victor Frankenstein in making a mate for his creature is a concern about creating a whole race. Yes. Because of its, you know, superpowers essentially could actually overrun the so-called normal people. So yep. I do think there are some really interesting connections between Frankenstein, which comes what, 70 years before mm -hmm. and then Dracula. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of the deep, the deep concerns of British society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for those of you who um, know about the movie, there is a movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I would say that my favorite character and favorite casting choice is for the character of this madman, Renfield, who is played so well by the singer Tom Waits in the film. So you can... Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's really good. Well, there are actually... Uh... Uh, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but hey, this is a podcast. But there, there are a whole bunch of fascinating film versions of Dracula. And the earliest one that I'm aware of um, is called Nosferatu. And uh, I'm looking to see if I have my notes in front of me about the Like, I don't remember what year Nosferatu came out, but Nosferatu is, uh, is a silent film. Mm -hmm. So it's only a few decades after the novel was even written. And uh, Nosferatu hugely plays up the uh, racial outsider threat. And in fact, the Dracula character, oh, uh, 1922, says Sam. <laughs> um, so actually closer in uh, chronological proximity to the novel itself. And uh, the visual appearance of the man who plays Dracula is he looks like a then uh, very caricatured 
negative racial stereotype of a Jewish person. And so it could very much, uh, one possible read of that film version of the novel is, oh, it's those Jewish people who are a threat, um, which is kind of interesting because anti-Semitism was rampant on both sides of the Atlantic um, at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So lots to read and even some movies, some some movie ideas for you. Indeed. We're Indeed. still a little hunkered down here. Um, Marion, I want to give you a chance to say um, anything you want about any series you're watching on the Netflix or whatever, or um, maybe what's on your nightstand. Yeah, so uh, this week um, Comcast is making a lot of uh, – uh, a, a lot of their streaming <laughs> programming free. And uh, so we're watching the, um, the Last Dance, the documentary series about uh, the Chicago Bulls and uh, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and all of those. Uh, I, I'm not a big follower of basketball, but, um, and I've always viewed the Bulls as the enemy because you know they were super good and the Timberwolves were not. Um, but wow, super interesting. And I could watch video of Michael Jordan um, play basketball. I could watch that all day. So that's we're, we're about halfway through that series. And uh, I'm still reading that book I mentioned last time about uh, by a, a feminist theologian who kind of, uh, kind of a companion piece to Augustine's Confessions. But the additional book I'm reading right now is uh, a collection of essays called One Long River of Song by Brian Doyle. Um, Brian Doyle used to write regular pieces for Christian Century Magazine. That's where I first encountered his work. Um, and a couple of years ago, he died of uh, cancer and um, when I read the the many, um, not really obituaries, but the many uh, comments about him and his work in Christian Century, I thought, man, I want to read this guy. And uh, so One Long River of Song, the subtitle is Notes on Wonder. And uh, I, I just, I don't even know where to start in talking about how beautiful this book is. Um, some of these essays are like, one paragraph kind of a prose poem and some of them are several pages long kind of personal observations reflections mm -hmm. um i i i'm making myself read this book slowly because it needs to be savored and this feels like exactly the right time it, it's like reading a collection of poetry but oh, that sounds great yeah carrie any um streaming that you're that you're watching yeah i have um started watching peaky blinders um which is uh, interesting show a little bit violent for my taste but fascinating story about um a, a gypsy family of kind of mobsters in birmingham after world war one trying to become legitimate and not be known as the gypsy family. Um, and also dealing with post-World War One. you know, all of the people and all the men in Birmingham had been in World War One, and so they all have PTSD. So some interesting storylines there. So I've been, I've been streaming that. And what's on um, your nightstand? 
Well, having just finished Frankenstein, right. um, I am now jumping back into James Joyce's Ulysses, since I had put that on hold for the Frankenstein week and a half. So I'm excitedly getting back into that. That makes sense. And I'll just uh, piggyback on Marion's comment about the, um, the free streaming right now. So uh, my husband and I are big fans of the series Luther, Idris mm. Elba. So we had not seen season five and I watched season five just recently. And that is such an interesting show. It's starring a detective who is really good at solving really tough cases, but is also dealing with um, some ethical ambiguities in his own life. And uh, that's a fascinating show. And I'm still reading the um, All Creatures Great and Small, which I continue to enjoy. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? I, I couldn't have guessed. Well, I'm not sure when we will be putting out the next podcast, but um, if you don't hear from us until fall, I hope you all have a wonderful summer. And thanks for joining us. You've been listening to... Okay, shut Bethel. Bethel.